0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. If you travel to uh, Walsingham in England, there is a chapel there that has on display a lot of medieval iconography. And some of it is beautiful. Some of it is downright weird. Uh, One of the weirder pieces is a pair of legs Plaster legs that are sticking down from the ceiling. They're punctured, so these are Jesus' legs. And right next to the display is a plaque that reads, The Ascension. (laughs) I mean, it's one way to depict the event, I suppose. A pair of legs dangling from the ceiling, and a lot of people, no doubt, chuckling around. Uh, these plaster legs, wondering, what on earth is this? But I think that's a good question, actually. When you consider the ascension of Jesus, what, I mean, what is this? What is this really all about? What is the meaning of this event where Jesus' physical form is enveloped into heaven? How can we even come close to understanding uh, this most mystifying event in the life of Jesus Christ? I, I want to ask that question today. Well, what is this? What is the meaning of the ascension of Jesus? Is it retirement? Is it abandonment? Is it some grand finale? I mean, what are we talking about here? I want to say in this sermon, or or clarify the matter in this sermon, by talking about what the ascension is not. The first thing that the ascension is not, is that the ascension is not retirement. It's Uh, depicted very frequently in medieval art, uh, the ascension that is, as Jesus in heaven, surrounded by clouds, sitting on a cushion, often having a drink in his hand, as if uh, the artist is meaning to suggest that now Jesus is off the clock. It's all done, and he's just resting. That's principally what the ascension is all about. I don't think that's true. This is verse 1 of the book of Acts. I encourage you to uh, read along with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, Luke is the author of two books in the New Testament, comprising almost half of the New Testament. First is the Gospel according to Luke, which is a biography of the life of Jesus, and then there's a sequel to it that we know as the book of Acts, uh, in which he chronicles the life of the early church. And it's fascinating to me that Luke summarizes his first book, his gospel, the biography of Jesus, with these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. Really? When you think about the content of his first book, the content of the Gospel of Luke, he seems to do a lot more than just begin a story. He talks about the time before Jesus was conceived, talks about the miraculous conception, the birth of Jesus Christ, the adolescence of Jesus Christ. He then talks about all of the parables, the miracles, the exorcisms, the confrontation with the religious and political powers of the day. And then finally, his execution and resurrection, and then ascension. Sounds to me like the entire story, but the author does not see it that way. He perceives the past of Jesus as the beginning of his labor. Certainly, a definitive moment occurs in that labor when Jesus on the cross says it is finished, and in a real sense, the redeeming work is done. But now comes a long chapter of that redeeming work applied to human beings. And that chapter is extended and is still extending the beginning of his work. Luke's gospel, therefore, is the work of Jesus on earth. But the book of Acts, in some ways, represents Jesus' work from heaven. Luke understands the ministry of the early Christians to be, by extension, the work of Jesus. It's still the work of Jesus, but it's coming through surrogates, through intermediaries. So when the apostles preach about Jesus, when they work cures in the name of Jesus, when they include Gentiles in the church based off of the character and teaching of Jesus and the inspiration of the Spirit in that moment, they are extending through their hands and their voices the hands and voice of Jesus Christ in the present. That his dominion extends uh, through his... Uh, disciples through people like us. The historic title of the book of Acts, I would like in this sermon to rewrite the title. I want to erase it and come up with a different title from the book of Acts. Traditionally, and this title is not in the original manuscripts, so don't get mad at me or nervous. Uh, the, uh, the title is The Acts of the Apostles. I think it should be The Acts of the Ascended Jesus, uh, because he is the one the one who began all of his ministry in the Gospel of Luke and extends that ministry now in the book of Acts. This is not retirement. The ascension of Jesus Christ suggests that he is still active. Not retirement. It's also not abandonment. The ascension is not abandonment. It seems that way at first glance. This is from verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Ascension does not mean desertion. It means power and presence. The ascension means that Jesus moves into both the oval office and your guest room. First, the oval office. Um, The ascension is uh, the promotion of Jesus Christ into a place of newer, grander authority. And we know that because of how he is taken to be with God. What's remarkable, right, is is not that Jesus just vanishes, but that there's a physical occurrence. There's a there's a lifting up and an exaltation of this body into heaven and then it's covered over with a cloud. And that language is the biblical language of authority. Just as a side note, there are a lot of people who critique the account of the ascension because for them it suggests or requires An ancient way of looking at the world where you have this tripart system of hell beneath you, this plane where we are right now, and then there's heaven right above us. And so some scholars today believe that ancient people were all like idiots, and they really believed that God was riding on clouds. They didn't read their scriptures because in the Jewish scriptures we know about God's omnipresence, about God being everywhere, about nothing being able to contain God, not even the heavens. So the ancient Jews did not really believe that God was like sitting somewhere on a cloud. That just wasn't the picture. But clouds became a symbol, a symbol an important and rich symbol in not only Israelite theology but pagan theology as well. The clouds became a symbol of the transcendent, of that which was glorious and majestic. And you know why. Everybody knows why. Because once a year, you get a free calendar from some Christian group, and it has lots of pictures of sunsets. And there's a reason, because the way that clouds look in the sky suggests something about uh, God's majesty, creativity, and beauty. If you saw the sunset two nights ago in Slippery Rock, I mean, it was just stunning, And that's how the ancients thought. When they saw the clouds and the grandeur of the sky, they thought of God. Jesus is being taken up and enveloped into this um, this public sign and witness, which suggests that he's being taken into the heavenly dimension. And this idea of of the Son of God being surrounded by clouds is throughout the Bible. In Daniel 7, that's one of the most famous passages, where the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days, And is presented before him surrounded in cloud the same thing is mentioned in mark chapter 14 where jesus is brought into trial the high priest asks him about his identity are you the son of god and he answers i am and you will see the son of man seated next to the mighty one in glory and coming with the clouds of heaven and then those same clouds return at the most um, magnificent and glorious moment of Jesus' ministry, the Transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and then there appears with him Moses and Elijah and his clothes become dazzlingly white, and he's surrounded by the glory cloud at that moment. These clouds are a way of God showing his imminence, his presence with his people, and, and his power. And so Jesus is experiencing that same thing here. Uh, St. Paul, later in Ephesians, unpacks the meaning of this heavenly scene. He says this in Ephesians chapter 1, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power, and dominion. See, the ascension is not abandonment about Jesus leaving us or floating into outer space somewhere. The imagery of ascent is a tangible way of communicating a powerful spiritual truth. A tangible way of God showing Jesus' own lordship. It is the Son of Man's enthronement. It is his coronation. It is moving into the celestial oval office. This is why Jesus can say, right before his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the ascension physically demonstrates that power and authority. So he's moving into the oval office, But what is this universal monarch's first executive order from that Oval Office? Well, he decides that he's going to move into your guest room. That the ascension does not remove Jesus from us. Strangely, it makes him closer. And we know this because of what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit um, is directly connected with the ascension of Jesus. In fact, it seems that he ascends to his place of power in order to send that same spirit. The two are, are connected. Immediately before his ascension, Jesus says to his disciples, and this is verse 5 from our text, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Meaning, you're not going to have a lot of time without me. We know this uh, from John 14. He tells his disciples who were at the Last Supper terrified about losing their Messiah and losing him rather imminently. He says to them at that point, I will not leave you as orphans. Instead, I will ask the Father and He will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the executive order. Uh, He moves into our guest room. That is, the Holy Spirit, called by St. Paul, the Spirit of Jesus, takes up residence. He's close. So what does the ascension do? It moves from the particular Jesus speaking Aramaic, living in Palestine, ministering to a limited number of people in a backwater place, takes the particular Jesus and makes Him the universal Jesus. The ascended Jesus is not limited by geography, language, culture, or time. The Spirit-giving ascended Christ is right now with believers of every stripe, with soccer moms, with fatigued dads, with doubt-sodden believers, with single people, divorced people, refugees in Aleppo, people who can't locate Aleppo on a map, our children, kids at the public school, kids at the Christian school, people in Harrisville, people in Nantucket. He was there at your birth. He'll be there when you die. Therefore, it's very personal. The ascension is deeply personal. This is a true story of a dying man's daughter who asked a local pastor to come and pray with him. She said to this minister friend of hers, I would love you to pray with my father. I keep asking my own minister to go and pray, uh, but the minister always forgets because he gets so caught up in his own work. Would you mind visiting my dad for just a few minutes? I don't think he has long to live. The pastor agreed and drove to the dying man's house. When the pastor arrived, he found the man lying in bed with his head propped up on two pillows, and an empty chair beside the bed. The pastor knocked on the door and then opened it, and the old man uh, took notice right away. I guess you were expecting me, said the pastor. No, sir, who are you? Well, I'm a friend of your daughter's, and she asked me to visit you. I apologize. Uh, When I saw the empty chair next to your bed, I figured that you were expecting me. He said, oh yeah, the chair. Would you mind closing that door? And the man said, well, you're a minister, so I can tell you this. I've never really spoken about this, not even to my daughter, but I've been a Christian all my life, and I've never known how to pray. At church, I used to hear the pastor drone on and on about prayer, but it always went right over my head. I asked the pastor to teach me how to pray, but he just handed me a book by Hans Urs von Balthasar. He said, this is the best book on prayer in the 20th century. I tried to read it. I got through 11 pages and I had to look up 20 words in the dictionary. And so I gave up any attempt to pray for the next 10 years. But after abandoning my prayer life, I ran into an old friend of mine whom I never regarded as very spiritual and I hinted that prayer was a struggle for me. But He said to me, Joe, don't you understand that prayer is just about having a conversation with Jesus? It's very simple. So here's what I would do. I think that you should just place an empty chair in front of you and in faith see Jesus sitting on the chair. I know it sounds crazy, but he said that I'll be with you always. And so you could speak to him just like you're speaking to me. The man said, so I tried it. And I like it so much that Sometimes I do it a couple hours every day. I'm careful, though, cautious even. If my daughter saw me talking to an empty chair, I think she'd put me in a funny farm. But pastor, I don't know. What do you think? Is that prayer? And the pastor said, Joe, that is so simple and beautiful. It must delight the heart of Jesus. It is most certainly prayer. And then the minister prayed with Joe and anointed him with oil and left. Two nights later, the daughter called to thank the pastor for his visit and tell him that her father had passed away that afternoon. The pastor asked, Did your father seem to die with any peace? Yes, she said. When I left the house around 2 o'clock, he called me over to his bedside, told me one of his corny jokes, Kissed me on the cheek. When I got back from the store an hour later, I found him dead. But then there was something strange, very strange. Apparently, just before he died, my dad leaned over and rested his head on the chair that was beside his bed. This story is not pious sentimentality. This is the ascension. The ascended spirit-giving Christ is nearer to you than your closest friend, than your spouse, than your children. He is always in your arena and not as some taskmaster or big brother. This is the friend of sinners. This is the scarred man. There's one last point. The ascension is not retirement, the ascension is not abandonment, and the ascension is not the grand finale. This is verse 11. The angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I think the disciples always thought that various moments in the life of Jesus would mean or trigger the end of the world, and therefore the end of their labor. Here it is. The apocalyptic resurrection of Jesus has begun, the first fruits from the dead, and maybe this is the end. And, and we're all moving on. Now, he told them they had work to do, but they never listened to Jesus. So they, you know, I don't know. Well, they're coming to a place now of visually understanding what's occurring, because he leaves but then they, they stay for a while. The loitering apostles have to have an angelic visitation to push them out into the world, and they say, don't worry, this Jesus, this Jesus will return. That is, the same Jesus whom you know, the same Jesus with, with fingernails and a heartbeat, the same Jesus who held you, the same Jesus who spoke to you, that is the same Jesus who will come again. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses had this crazy teaching because they predicted the return of Christ in the year 1914. Well, like 1914 kind of came and went, and Jesus didn't come back. And so they said, well, he spiritually returned. I don't even know where to begin with that. But that's to say that it's this same Jesus who ascended will also descend. And it's an incredibly important point because the ascension does not involve the shedding of skin or the shedding of humanity heaven heaven the locust the center of heaven is not occupied by concepts or some soul without a body no heaven's oval office is occupied by a scarred but risen body in the incarnation we have heaven coming to earth in the ascension we have earth going to heaven But in Christ, in his incarnation and ascension, we have the blending together of both realms, of heaven and earth, which is a preview of the grand finale to come, when there is a new heaven and a new earth with no enmity between them, perfectly connected. God is, therefore, forever embodied. Because there's no shedding of skin, the ascension means God is forever, from that point, embodied. And so there will be a time in which you will see God. See God. The ascension, therefore, friends, is the beginning of the fireworks. But no fireworks show is complete without a grand finale. This enthroned, embodied Christ will not leave us as orphans. And he will not leave the world as an orphanage. He's coming for all of us. And he's coming to make all things new. So in closing, the ascension is not retirement, but activity. Jesus labors through the voices and fingertips of his family, that's you and me. Our work is not over, but it has been dignified, because through our feeblest efforts, the risen Lord of life labors on. The ascension is not abandonment, but power and presence. Our world, governments, schools, and families are ultimately not overseen by an unpredictable chaos, a behaviorally oriented karma, nor predatory drives. But behind the temper tantrums of personal and cosmic history resides the embodiment of all that is good and gracious. The reins of history are held in strong, scarred, kind hands. Also, the ascension is not the finale, the grand finale. We live currently without the solaces of a tangible Christ. We cannot hear his audible words or feel his embrace. We cannot drive to Columbus, Ohio and visit him. And yet, this promise stands forever. The clouds and fields will meld, heaven and earth shall fully unite, and our elder brother, with his own scarred feet, shall run to embrace his billions of prodigals. Until then, the ascension means that, even now, no hand is unclasped, no tear is unseen, and no chair is ever truly empty. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.